0: talking some today. Uh, So in my quest to become uh, self-aware, I've learned about myself that I have a very high need for approval and encouragement. And another thing that I've learned about myself is that I have um, a rare talent, I think it's a gift, for making people uncomfortable. (laughs) So uh, towards both of those ends, I'm going to give you a couple of words and phrases that will accomplish that, I think, for us both. Give me the encouragement and approval I need and make you all very uncomfortable. <laughs> so here they are. Repeat after me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Preach it. Preach it. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Now, that's your toolkit, and you can use those throughout the sermon to give me what I need and give you what you need because, you know, it's good for us being comfortable. We get expanded, right? <laughs> so um, <laughs> let's pray. Holy um, Holy Spirit. It always goes without saying that you're here. But nevertheless, we invite you and we welcome you to work in and among us. Come now and be present with us and speak to us and teach us. Amen. So as I read through uh, the Romans 7 passage that Lyle just read, I couldn't help but notice that what St. Paul is talking about is very similar to what the famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung Jung, calls the shadow self. The shadow is the part of the personality that is unconscious. It is the dark side of the self. Freud, a a contemporary of his, and I believe his teacher, more often referred to this idea as the ego. And if you noticed the quotes from the spiritual writer and mystic Thomas Merton, which are in the worship guide, he calls it the false self. I think that Paul and Jung and Freud and Merton, for that matter, would agree that there's something going on in the human psyche, behind the scenes, something that we're unaware of, something that most of us don't have control over. There is some alternate version of us waging an inner war with our conscious selves. Now, I am no psychologist, but I am a student of the human condition, and I'm a student of myself. And I've recently been thinking a lot about the topic of self-love. For the past couple of years, there has been unfolding in me a new consciousness, a new awareness of my own shadow self. For one thing, I've been studying the Enneagram, which I highly recommend. If you haven't studied the Enneagram, I recommend it. It is an excellent spiritual tool for exposing the shadow self and becoming self-aware. And also, I began a meditation practice a couple of years ago. And believe me, if there is anything that will highlight your inner chatter, it's trying to be quiet. I've learned that my chatter, particularly towards my own self, is or was overwhelmingly negative, full of self-criticism, reproach, perfectionism, and sometimes downright loathing. So I might say that I have been on a journey to learn to love myself, to be kind to myself, to nurture myself, and to avoid talking negatively or criticizing myself. This has been often an uphill battle, fighting against years of ingrained thought and internal programming. So I resonate with that Romans 7 passage. St. Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from my own inner narrative and my own dark side, my own judgment? Part of the journey of becoming aware of this negative inner dialogue has been to face down some of its sources in my life. Now, some of it was a result of learned behavior. We've all been exposed to shame-based learning paradigms that have been popular for the last few centuries. Um, and Some of it was because I was born a woman, which is to say that I was born the lesser sex, the second-class gender the one who must please and gain the approval of men and whose self-worth was sometimes entirely wrapped up in that. Now, obviously I don't believe that anymore, but the feminine wound is a deep one. Some of this programming was told to me by the fundamentalist church. I was, according to that paradigm, a nasty product of original sin And I was as filthy rags and in danger of hellfire and damnation if I did not repent. And I was so bad that God had to kill Jesus so that God didn't kill me. And being pure and holy meant punishment and self-denial. Because I had to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. And mostly what that meant was taking on more shame and guilt and more and so on and so forth. And it was messed up. All of that. Theology and societal messaging got into my head and it messed me up. Yeah. <laughs> my friend, I have a friend, Marty, who is a psychiatrist and he's a good friend of mine. We often have discussions about various topics and we were recently talking about spiritual trauma and he said something that stuck with me and it's this. He said, If you are like every other human, you are projecting self-condemnation onto those around you. It's normal. I heard that, and I was like, what does that even mean? And he said, deep down, we perfectionists can't help but blame self subtly for almost anything we perceive as wrong with our world. I'm not good enough, is our narrative. Because experiencing the pain of self-blame is very uncomfortable, we tend to subconsciously place anger at self onto another viable target. The church, father, mother, Trump, Hillary, so on and so forth. Not that there isn't real injustice to be angry about, but ultimately maturity looks like complete acceptance of self and others. This is why recognition of evil is so helpful. It allows us to place our anger on the right target. And when he said that to me, I was like, dude, he is preaching, and I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to put in my sermon. I'm going use that. But really, I thought about it for a whole day, at least a whole day, because I knew that I was really good at self-blame and self-condemnation. And on some level, I knew that other people do this too, but that idea coming from a mental health professional hit me in a new way. We're all prisoners inside our own minds. We are all slaves to our body of death. But my friend who spends all day doing psychotherapy with people who are deeply hurting and deeply traumatized is trying to get me to buy into this idea that basically all the problems I have with other people can be traced back to myself. This is a little hard to swallow, isn't it? And it kind of makes me want to do a whole nother round of self-condemnation. It's all my fault, right? Well, Freud, that student of human psyche he believed that projection is a defense mechanism that we humans use to avoid uncomfortable repressed feelings. Whatever we dislike and repress within ourselves, we tend to see magnified around us. And we tend to notice it in great detail in others. And Jung is well known for having said everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. So I pondered this. And I realized that while I could think of a few men, I think of a few men who are, or at least seem to be pretty self-confident and good at self-acceptance and not totally obsessed with self-criticism, I could think of virtually no women who are like that. I even texted Aurelia, can you think of any women who are not completely obsessed with criticizing themselves all the live long day? And she was like, I can think of three. Out of the hundreds of women she knows, she could think of three. I could think of zero. And then I decided to ask my friends on social media. Can you think of any They could hardly think of anyone they knew who was good at self-love and self-kindness. I racked my brain for famous people, particularly women, who are good at self-love. And I could think of a handful, most of them writer-thinker types who had spent their lifetimes learning this discipline and come to self-love as the result of a lifetime of spiritual work and retraining their minds. And I found this pretty heartbreaking. The night after I asked that question on social media, I was up all night, literally pretty much all night, thinking about it and I had a lot of questions bubbling up to the surface. If self-hatred and unforgiveness equals or leads to hatred and unforgiveness towards other people, then why do we not teach self-love at church? Does evil boil down to a problem of blame-shifting and scapegoating? Could we change the world by doing the work of self-compassion? Are we who self-condemn really just projecting that onto other people, we who are so humbly down on ourselves and so readily denying ourselves? And what would it look like for me to lay down my judgment of myself? Would I judge other people as much? Now, I've been criticizing my whole life, myself. I've been criticizing myself my whole life, and I'm really, really good at it. And from what I can tell and from what my friends who are psychiatrists and psychologists tell me, I'm not unique in this. This problem isn't just me. So for instance, I would criticize my body mercilessly. It would never be good enough. I had no idea where to even begin the task of accepting myself because my mantra had always been work in progress and I'm not there yet. And I thought I had to be perfect before I could accept myself because accepting an imperfect me would be shortchanging myself and shortchanging God. We've heard the saying, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And for me, perfectionism was the enemy of self-compassion and self-acceptance. I think to myself things like, well, when you lose 10 pounds, then your body will be worthy of acceptance and love. Or look at you, you are in your mid-30s and you haven't accomplished anything. Or you are a terrible mother, woman. You just yelled at your children again because that's what you always do. You have failed yet again. You have disappointed your husband, church, family, friends, church community yet again. And as I began to wake up, to my inner chatter, I begin to realize what I'm doing here is deeply unkind to myself. I am looking in the mirror every day and I am just dogging myself. I am my worst friend. I have a best friend and she would never in a million years say the mean things to me that I'm saying to myself on a daily basis and if she did, I would fire her from her best friend job. <laughs> so I resolved to fire myself from the job of self judgment and it is not easy cause she doesn't quit. But an interesting thing happened as I worked it. As I started Accepting myself. I found it easier to accept others and as I stopped seeing myself in a critical light I stopped seeing others in that light as I was practicing kindness toward myself on a bunch of issues. I became better at kindness to others And that's the thing about inner transformation it radiates outward. This does not mean that I became self-indulgent. Self-compassion is not self-centeredness. Selfishness is not the same as self-care. Self-kindness is not arrogance or self-inflation. True self-love is self-aware, but kind in its corrections. It deals with the shadow self decisively, but with kindness. without condemnation. So if you or I can't love and nurture the person who lives inside our bodies, how will we nurture the people who live outside of us? If our minds are a cesspool of self-judgment, then what makes us think we'll be able to avoid judging others? And what would the world look like if we laid judgment down? What if we reread that deny-thyself passage through a lens of love, and started denying ourselves the habit of perfectionism. In a sermon entitled, Your True Self is Love, Richard Rohr says this, the true self, where you and God are one, does not choose to love as much as it is love itself already. The true self does not teach us compassion as much as it is compassion. Loving from this core of your being is experienced as a river within you that flows of its own accord. From this more spacious and grounded place, one naturally connects, empathizes, forgives, and loves everything. We were made in love, for love, and unto love. So part of what I believe that Christ is offering when he offers us peace and freedom is peace inside our own selves and freedom from our own judgment. Part of what salvation is is letting go of our false self and discovering our true self. Yes, we pay attention to our areas of failing and we look for our blind spots and we do the work of transformation. And this is the work of the life of faith. It is the be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what spiritual formation is and what spiritual practice is. It's why we have spiritual practice at all, because our minds are wayward, and we need constant reminding, and we have many ruts inside our minds that our thinking just blindly sinks down into and will blindly follow if we let it. And this is what St. Paul is telling us in the Romans 7 passage. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. My true self is fighting against my false self. Who will rescue me from my false self? When we practice compassion and non-judgment toward ourselves, we are simply living in to our true identity. We are learning to see ourselves and others with more divine eyes. Just as when we pull darkness out of our souls by its roots, we are living into our true identity. Our true self is not some namby-pamby hanger on to evil. It is loving assertiveness, expanded and able to offer love to the most annoying, the least lovable, and the ugliest whether those are to be found within us or outside of us. We change the world when we start loving ourselves and being our true selves. So what if working on self-love, which is to say, peeling back the layers of our consciousness and waking up to the love of God that is all around us and coming toward us in abundance always, were a key to fighting evil and defeating injustice? What if all it takes is us getting out of the way of God loving us for hell to be vanquished? And this is why we have to train ourselves to a better way. We have a lot of tools. We have the help of Holy Spirit, who is so gracious and patient, and who waits for permission and who will walk with us and speak with us when we open ourselves to hear her voice. We have, hopefully, and I think you have here, loving communities that reflect truth back to us. We have the example of Christ who, while he did occasionally speak um, harsh words to groups in an effort to get them to wake up and become conscious, he never spoke condemnation of any kind to any individual. He spoke loving correction, yes, but condemnation, no, no. And right there, I think, is another rubric that we can use. If we can't imagine Christ saying it to us, we should not be saying it to ourselves. And my friends, if the Jesus you imagine in your mind would speak condemning or hateful words to you or to anyone, you are not seeing the real Jesus, and I encourage you to go back to the scriptures and read them through a lens of love. Many of us have been handed an image of Christ, an image of faith in general that is judgy and vengeful and full of violence and nitpicking and damnation. And I'm here to tell you that there is a better Jesus than that. There is the real Jesus who when you get into a room with the real Jesus, he will overwhelm you with love. but I think there's another step on the journey to self-love, which is perhaps unavoidable if we want to actually get there. And my friend hinted at it in his words to me, and it's this. It's learning to acknowledge evil. Learning to discern who or what our enemy is. Because God loves me, and God made me, and my natural equilibrium and identity is peace and love. And if something is causing me disequilibrium, it must be evil. It must be darkness. Whether it's internal darkness or external darkness, that's a good question, and we should consider it. It must be darkness. I never wanted to admit this. I would rather go my whole life without ever thinking about evil. Evil forces, darkness, evil spirits. I don't want to think about it. But we know what St. Paul says in another of his letters. This is Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If evil doesn't exist, then the blame for all this darkness is squarely on us. If evil doesn't exist, then our self-blame is righteous. Righteous. If evil doesn't exist, then it actually is all our fault. And our self-condemnation and self-reproach are right. But evil does exist. And we have to come to terms with the evil we're exposed to and hold it in tension with our own enormous inner capacity for evil. Like, really, I'm enormously capable of evil towards myself and other people, and so are you. We have to name darkness so that we don't spend our whole lives thinking that the darkness we can't get rid of is us. This is self-condemnation. If we never acknowledge that evil exists, we will get, out, we will get ourselves mixed up with it. And if we never take steps to do the necessary inner work of exposing our darkness and rooting it out, we will spend our lives in self hatred. If we never admit that evil spiritual powers have the capacity to affect us and lie to us and hoodwink us into believing all sorts of bad ideas, we're never going to know how to protect ourselves. We must learn to distinguish ourselves from what Paul calls in Romans sin that dwells in me. So there's evil. But on the other hand, if we're made in the image of God, with love as our nature and grace as our gift and our right, if grace is the ocean we're all sinking in, you guys know that song, one of John Martin McMillan's great lines. If God's primary attitude toward us is love, and if God is offering us every spiritual tool with which to deal with evil, and indeed already dealt with it decisively in the work of Christ, if God is waking us up progressively to the darkness and light around us and within us and empowering us to take care of it and have authority over it, because Jesus, this is Jesus' words, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever we loose on earth will be loose in heaven. It's from Matthew 18. If we take hold of that stuff, of those promises, then suddenly self-love becomes a viable option. Self-love makes sense again, even though we must deal with evil. The love of the creator so infuses us that we can't help but love ourselves and others. There is only one ocean, and it's grace. There's only one air to breathe, and it's grace. There's only one place of rest, and it is grace. And we hold this tension throughout our lives of know, between knowing and living out our true identities as examples of the Creator's artistry, as royal sons and daughters and priests and priestesses, and our neediness our tendency toward evil, the darkness inside of our own selves, and our utter dependency on someone to save us from ourselves. Who will rescue me from this body of death? My friends, God has given us everything we need to allow ourselves to be rescued. We will encounter evil within and without ourselves. And we will have to deal with our own wayward minds and with our programming, and we'll have to deal with the shadow inside ourselves that keeps us unloving towards ourselves and others. But I believe that we can change the world when we assume our true identities as love of God and learn to practice self-love that radiates outward. Because... Self-kindness is a kindness that expands and multiplies. And hallelujah that we have the tools to begin this transformation, one of the greatest and best of which is prayer, which is simply the act of forming a request or an intention and sending it God's way. So I invite you... To pray this prayer with me. You'll find it there in your worship guide. Loving Creator, we confess that in general we are bad at loving ourselves. ourselves. Many of us have been criticized mercilessly and have simply accepted the habit of it. Help us us to regard ourselves with the same kindness and patience. Help us to lay down our judgments of ourselves and others. Help us to see ourselves and everyone around us in the light of love. Which is your mind. Help us to feed, nourish, care for, and live into our true self. Which is your in us. We acknowledge that we live amongst tensions and paradoxes that are not always easy to parse out. And Light and darkness. Light and we acknowledge that our enemies are mostly unseen. We acknowledge that we must both accept ourselves as we are. And we acknowledge that you have given us authority and power over evil. Hallelujah! For you have looked upon us with eyes full of grace. Grace is the, we grace is the ocean we swim in.
1: Grace is our
0: resting.